Okay, so we're going to read from Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. Uh, if you've got a phone uh, with a Bible on it, I always say if you've got a phone on you, of course you've got a phone on you. Do you have a Bible on it? Not so sure. So if you've got a phone with a Bible on it or an actual Bible with you, then we're going to read. The words will appear on the screen behind me, uh, just in case you don't. But it might be helpful to have it with you uh, just for this next little section of today. So this is Mark, chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. Uh, let's read God's Word together. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and they followed him. And when he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. And we thank God for his word as it still speaks to us today. So if you've been with us uh, over these last number of weeks, you will know that uh, since kind of December, we have been tracking the kind of movement of the Christian seasons. Um, we're going to be dipping into this a little bit as we go through the year, as we kind of have touchstone moments. But at the minute, we've been tracking it kind of dead on how it falls. And so we started with Advent. And as I said last week, we started with Advent. Everybody gets it. We moved into Christmas then and arrival. And everybody understands that. And then you get the Epiphany. And nobody understands that. So we've been spending, this is week uh, four in Epiphany. I think there's two more after that as we talk about and we unpack what Epiphany means, what it means to have a revelation of Jesus as God's word presents what that might look like. And so we've been uh, viewing that revelation, that epiphany through a number of pictures. The first was the picture of the Magi and their journey toward Jesus as he was born. And then through the ministry, the message, the life of John the Baptist. And then last week through Jesus' first miracle. And this week, the calling of the first disciples. These are all pictures, all pictures that point to the revelation of Jesus. And I want you to go with me for a little moment back to those magical moments, right? Those magical first moments when you passed your driving test, right? Go back with me. Okay, Jamie, that's about like, yeah, it's about 15 minutes ago. Everybody else, go back with me, right? We could be going back sometime, some of you. I mean, you know, was horses and carts back then or something like that. Anyway, that's insulting. Sorry, sorry. Um, Go back with me to when we... First past your driving test, right? Postcard moment. Mine happened to be in the Larn test center, right? I mean, no good photograph has ever been taken in Larn. But anyway, postcard moment. Passed my driving test in Larn with that guy. There was a guy around that time. He was a Scottish guy. His name was Maxwell. I don't mean like, I don't mean like African Maxwell. His surname was Maxwell. He failed everyone, right? So there I was passing my test on the second time. My first test having yielded a glorious 23 minors. I arrived for my second test, which I passed. I'm not better. I'm not better at all. My younger brother passed his the first time, but I'm not better about that either. It's fine. You know, people like me make that sort of embittered statement. All the best people pass the second time, don't they, right? There we go. You see, more better people, more better people, right? So, passing your driving test, right? Go back with me to those glorious moments where you kind of first get back home, you get in the car, and then you pull off, and you begin to drive away in the car, and it's just like freedom. I can go wherever I want. I can go however I want. Well, that's part of the problem, right? You begin to drive however you want. And let's be honest, we all drove like complete 
idiots whenever we passed our driving test, right? Oh, however, well, I mean, my brother passed his about about a couple of months after I passed mine. And between he and I, we managed to bald a full set of tires in my mom's Renault Clio 1.2 in less than a year, right? The whole set of tires balded because we drove like idiots. But no matter how badly we drove, right, it didn't go as badly for us as it went for this guy, right? German teenager, loses driving license after 49 minutes, right? This kid passes his driving test, pulls out, of the, pulls out of the test center, drives back home. When he gets back home, tells parents. He then drives off, picks up three friends who get in the back of the car. And as he's driving through the next town, which is a 30, he's doing 60, gets gunned and loses his driving license 49 minutes after he passed it, right? In perhaps the most German statement of all time, a police officer said, some things last forever, others not for one hour. Now, obviously, I never drove like that, ever, and neither did you. But I always thought that the best thing whenever you passed your driving test was not that you could drive like a loon, right? The best thing when you passed your driving test was driving in convoy. I don't know about you, but we thought it was the coolest thing in the whole world, right? You pass your driving test and, like, my mate's driving his car behind me. Like, it sounds so sad now, but at the time, it was the coolest thing. Particularly if you were going to the coast, or it was like a long journey down south to Dublin or whatever. It was the coolest thing, driving in convoy. But... The one thing that you get to learn pretty quickly when you drive in convoy, right, is not just that it means committing to driving where they drive. It means committing to driving how they drive, right? So if you tend to get in behind somebody else who is like absolutely flying, you're flying too, right? Because if you don't, they get lost. They get too far ahead. You can't find them. You get lost. You don't make it to your destination. Equally, if they're one of these people that crawls, and I mean crawls, safety first type people, you end up crawling because you can't overtake them because you don't know where you're going. So you end up crawling to your destination, don't you? It's not just where they drive. It's how they drive. And today we're reading Mark's account of Jesus calling the first disciples. And the reality is he's doing exactly the same thing. The thing is, this call, follow me, that Jesus makes, is something that he does time and time again. He actually does it 23 times across the four Gospels. He directly calls people to follow him. And every single time, it's exactly the same thing. It's not just a call to go where I'm going. It's a call to go how I'm going. And we're reading right from the very start of Mark's gospel today. And often what's important whenever you read passages like that is to read the stuff that happens around it. So if you read from the very start of Mark's gospel, it gives an account of the story of Jesus' life at that point. And so it starts with John the Baptist, emerges from the wilderness, the forerunner to Jesus, talks about Jesus, kind of paves the way, right? Uh, And so he is the forerunner, and then we see Jesus. He arrives, and in Mark's account, that leads straight to his baptism, and then he heads, heads out into the wilderness where he's tempted for a period of time and then he returns to Galilee and he speaks for the first time and these are the words that he speaks he says the time has come he said the kingdom of God has come near repent and believe the good news it's the first thing he says when he opens his mouth in his public ministry the time has come the kingdom of God is here and it's spoken to this watching and desperately longing World, You see, this, first and foremost, was preeminently good news. It was good news because it was true, right? The first thing about this news was it was true. 
And what he was saying at this moment in time was to the ancient world, they kind of looked at the world and realized that they could only guess and scramble around in the dark after some notion of who God was until these moments. They're just scrambling around, trying to figure out what God looks like, trying to figure out what kind of God he is, trying to figure out what he would have to say about certain things, and then Jesus comes. Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, said that the soul can see but dimly. And when he said dimly, dimly is actually a really interesting word because what that word means in our language is it means it's something like to see through water. Dimly meant to see through water. In other words, the kingdom is here. There's no need to see the world in a way that it's like looking through water anymore. Jesus is here. You can see clearly. It was good news because it was true. It was good news because it was about hope. And the ancient world wasn't like our world. It had a like default setting of pessimism, right? Our world has this like general default setting of optimism. That's like a post-World War II Western mentality, which is like the world can only get better, right? Onwards, upwards. Anything that doesn't do that, something's wrong. Because the world can only get better. But the ancient world wasn't like that. They had a much more pessimistic outlook on what it meant to be alive in those days. Actually, in some ways, it maybe feels a little bit like this very moment that we're in as a culture of objection and protest and disillusionment and disgruntledness and lostness. I mean, just two weeks ago on Saturday afternoon, the schedule after 1 p.m. at City Hall looked like this. First, there was a union flag demo, which was immediately followed by a yellow vest demo, and that was immediately followed by an Irish language demo. One newspaper called it a conveyor belt of protest. A conveyor belt of protest. That's the world we live in, isn't it? We're all protesting about something, but we don't actually know what we want. We just know what we don't want, right? The kingdom is here. And in a hopeless, pessimistic, protesting world, this means we don't need to struggle just to get our heads above it all anymore. This means hope for hopeless hearts. It was good news because it was true. It was good news because it was hope. It was good news because it meant peace and it meant promise and it meant salvation and so much more. What's Jesus doing? He's pitching the big vision, right? He's just arrived on the scene. He has no intention of going quietly, quietly, softly, softly. He arrives and he pitches the big, big vision. This is who he is. This is what he's up to in the world. The kingdom had come, so how on earth did he plan to implement it? That's the question, right? If the kingdom's come and that's the big vision, how did he, how did he mean to make it happen, right? Well, I was reading an article recently about Amazon. And we all know Amazon are like the biggest company in the world, all that sort of stuff. Um, they're incredible. And this, 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 um, this article was basically commenting on the fact that Amazon's growth is not due to the fact that it has more products than everyone else because they don't. It's not due to the, to the fact that they have better products than everybody else because they don't. It's not due to the fact that they're cheaper than everybody else because they're not. Amazon's success is because they are the absolute masters of getting it to you. Amazon has grown so rapidly because it's like a one-stop shop, one click, and you know it will arrive at your door. They're the absolute masters of the delivery system. And every message needs a delivery system. Everything. You can have the greatest message in the world, but if it doesn't reach its destination, it doesn't do any good, does it? Every message needs a delivery system. And the thing was that the ancient world was waiting desperately for this kingdom to come, but it it believed that it was going to come as like a steamroller of military might. 
They were desperately wanting change and they believed that it was going to be strength and power and might that was going to see it ushered in. And they were wrong. Jesus' kingdom is not some cataclysmic show of force. It's the quiet rule over human hearts. And how do you deliver that? Jesus was going to deliver it through the disciples and through them, us. And with these words, follow me, Jesus was laying the foundations of the kingdom of God on the shoulders of the disciples. That's what was happening right here. He was laying the foundations of what he was trying to do, who he was, what he was going to do in the world on the shoulders of these men. You know, to see Jesus today and this day and to hear those words, follow me, is to see beyond the words to a path and a person. I want you to see it today. I want you to see those two words in these two words, path and a person. The first of them is it's a path. Jesus comes to talk about a path. So he calls them that day, and it's those two words, follow me. And I'm just going to split them, right? Because I'm kind of straightforward like that, follow and me. So we're going to talk about follow first, right? And to follow someone is to go on a path. You're, you're going in a direction. It's not aimless. You're following. It's a path. Now, when I think about these moments, right, that we're reading from today, all I can think about is that scene in one of the best movies ever, Home Alone 2, right? It's that scene where, you know, somewhere quite near the start, the van rolls into like New York City, like a market area. It kind of pulls in. The shutter comes up at the back, and there they are, Harry and Marv, the two worst slash best bad guys ever in a film, right? And the shutter comes up, and Harry turns around to Marv, and he goes, You smell that, Marv? That's probably my best go, right? (laughs) It's not going to get any better than that. And Marv goes, Yeah, fish, right? And that's his response, right? Because the reality is, in that part of the world at that time, fishing was a big deal. Most people worked in one of two industries in that part of the world. One was fishing and two was salting fish. That's what they did. They either fished or they salted them. You, know, you had two options, really. Those were the, the kind of dominant businesses in Palestine at that time. And the reason was that people's everyday staple diet didn't look like ours. They ate fish. They maybe only ate red meat once a week, if that. The rest of the time, they ate fish. They ate vegetables. Fish was the staple diet. And it had to be salted fish. They didn't have ways of refrigerating or preserving them. Salt was the best way of doing that. So they had salted fish. In fact, there's lots of writing, not just Christian writing, but kind of writing outside the church that talks about how fish was essentially the delicacy, fresh fish in the great cities of places like Rome. To get fresh fish was like as good as it got. And if you don't believe me, then why don't you listen to some of the place names, right? Because they kind of tell the story in that part of Galilee at the time, okay? So here's a couple of place names just close to where we're talking about. The first is Bethsaida, and it's known as the House of Fish, right? The second one is Tarikea, which is the place of salt fish. Now, I know that you're thinking right now, I'm just reciting the names of Chippies in East Belfast. I'm not, right? These are real place names, the House of Fish and the place of salt fish, right? And the reality for Simon, this is important because the reality for Simon, Andrew, James, and John was that they were probably somewhere right in the middle of the wealth curve. They were somewhere right in the middle of the wealth curve. They wouldn't have been wealthy, nor would they have been extremely poor. They were working decent jobs in the mainstream working environment in their context. That's where they were that day. They're probably reasonably secure, reasonably sure-footed about their circumstances. They wouldn't have been men desperately trying to get out of where they were. 
They weren't destitute. In verse 20, for example, it describes James and John as having hired hands. So they were doing okay, right? And so it's impossible, therefore, to read what happens next. Jesus approaches them in the middle of what they're doing and says, come and follow me. These were not men desperate to get out of the circumstances they were in. They weren't in bondage. It wasn't a destitute situation. And yet, immediately, they are prepared to throw down their nets and to follow him. And that's astonishing, right? How quickly they were prepared to put down their nets, leave down everything they knew, leave down their security, their financial security, leave down the safety, familiarity, the cultural norm of being embedded in a family business, lay it all down in an instant and follow Jesus. How? How come? Well, this is what it goes on to say in verses 17 and 18. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and they followed him. You see, they heard Jesus say, follow me that day. They looked him in the eyes and they realized that what he was offering them was a way. He was offering them his way. It was a path and that path meant becoming fishers of men. Jesus had a path for them to follow and tasks for them to do. The reality was he was giving them something to invest their lives in. It wasn't just like come into a bunch of nothingness. He was saying, come and join me in this thing that I'm doing in the world. He was giving them something to invest all that they had in. And you know what? This runs so against how we do things lots of the time, doesn't it? Because the truth is that we can be so incredibly passive and lethargic about following Jesus in our lives, can't we? Like, we've heard the message We've come face to face with Jesus in his word. Maybe we've had experiences of his Holy Spirit, of encounters with God. We've heard the call of God, not just generally towards the whole church, but maybe specifically for you in your own life. You felt God speaking to you and know what you're meant to be doing with your life. And then in the end of the day, you can do very little about it. Or we can spend so much time thinking that if we just get all our stuff in order, whatever that stuff is, right, just get this all sorted and then I can kind of go on the thing you're calling me to do, Jesus. I know you've got this thing in the world that I'm meant to be part of, but if I just get it all right, then I'll go. Or else you're working with people, you know, you're leading others, young people, whatever. You're kind of looking at them going, well, if they could just get this sorted, then Jesus could really do something with them. And that's absolutely not what Jesus is doing here. Look what he says. He approaches them straight away. He doesn't say, tell me about your life. Tell me what's a mess at this moment in time. Tell me what could be better. I want to know about your flaws before I get you involved in what I'm doing in the world. He doesn't do that. He's just like, hey, come and follow me. Because he's not looking for perfection. He's looking for participation. Jesus is not looking for passive. He's looking for people that will lay down their nets. And he was offering them something to give themselves to. And when all of this was said and done, something that they would have so spent themselves on and given their all to that they knew that the only way that they could win something for themselves was by giving everything they had to him and his mission in the world. And he offers us exactly the same words. Follow me. Just follow me. And this is critical, right? Because the reality is that the church in most cases is not the most effective or compelling discipling environment in our world. The church is not the most effective discipling environment in the world. The reality is that our culture is most of the time. Think about it for a second. It is astonishing in its ability to make disciples. And the thing is that it's absolutely everywhere. 
It's everywhere. It's everywhere you look. It's 24-7. It's accessible right now. And it's discipling you. John Tyson, who leads a church in New York City, has written a really short book called The Creative Minority. You should buy it. You could read it in about 25 minutes. It's incredible, right? But he's written this book, and he draws it out really beautifully when he says this. Just think about how these forces press us into the world's view on things. Media pours story after story after story into our lives. What used to be truth is now just entertainment. Marketing, we ourselves have been branded due to how specific and how focused marketing is. Economics, we learn from the earliest age that more is better and better is never enough. Sexuality, sex is just physical and as long as no one's hurt, we can choose for ourselves whatever we want. Religion, there isn't one single true belief. They're all the same. They're all valid. Self-image, we speak of my truth. And it's a world where personal narrative has authority over absolute truth. Just think about those things for a second and what they're doing to your soul. Our world is forming us, whether you're aware of it or you're not. And the reality is, most of the time, it's much better at it than the church is. It's forming us. I mean, as you sit there today, do you think for one second that Jesus is the only one seeking to lay claim to your whole life? You think Jesus is the only one asking for it all? You think he's the only one calling you to drop everything and give yourselves to this cause or that cause or that lifestyle or whatever? Because he's not. The culture is. And it's probably doing it right now through the phone that's pinging in your pocket. And that you look at however many, what, I don't know what the stat is, it's like some ridiculous, like 1,600 times every day or whatever it is, you know. Jesus says follow. And I think what we've got to get our heads around is that this isn't about information, right? We love information in the church, don't we? We love courses, we love sermons, we love information. But the reality is that you have heard enough sermons in your life to change your life and transform the world. Even if you've been a Christian a little time. You've heard enough sermons in your life to change your life and transform the world. You've read enough books. You've been to enough conferences. I mean, just think about it right now. If you pulled your phone out, went to iTunes, went to podcasts, think of all the incredible content you could get access to right now that would speak into your life where you are. There is enough information in this world to change the world, and you could get it right now. I love information, by the way. I love podcasts. I love books. love conferences, all of that stuff. But the truth is, it is not God. And information alone isn't going to change your life and it isn't going to change the world. This isn't about information. Jesus wasn't promising them content. Notice that he doesn't give them any. He says, come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. That's it. There isn't any more going on there. There isn't some like great framework or anything like that. There's no content. He doesn't give them any. He's calling them to follow and following is about practices and it's about a path. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and a theologian who died uh, at the end of World War II. Actually, he was martyred. He was killed by firing squad by the Nazis. And he led the most astonishing life, right? He was an absolutely astonishing individual. He got his PhD at the age of 21. So I don't know what you're doing with your lives, but he got his PhD at the age of 21, right? And not only that, right? So his thesis 
uh, was kind of marked and commented on by Karl Barth, who's one of the greatest theologians who's ever lived. He read his thesis, remember it was written at age 21, and his comments were, it is a theological miracle, right? That's the level we're pitching at here, right? He was incredible, right? But he had this big message in his life. Like lots of these people, you know, that they're incredibly well-read, incredibly intelligent. But when it all boils down, they're actually really passionate and they really resonate with one idea. And this one idea in his life was the idea of God's presence amongst his people. That's the thing. That's the thing that had him. That was the thing that was in him to talk about and kind of obsess about and had him. Anyway, he becomes hugely disillusioned with the German church because the German church got seduced by the Nazi regime. It got seduced by power and by influence. And, uh, and if you know anything about the history of that time, it's like they got nationalized as the national church. And essentially the core value of that was that Hitler became the kind of head of the church, right? And he became, I mean, we listen to that now and we're like, hi, how could that ever happen? But these things happen in those contexts. The, the Nazi regime was incredibly powerful in how it discipled people. And so he becomes incredibly disillusioned with it. He speaks against it, all of that sort of stuff. And then he starts his own movement called the Confessing Church. And basically, it orientated itself around the idea that Jesus and not Hitler was the head of the church. This church comes under huge pressure. First of all, they outlawed memberships. You you couldn't be named as a member of the church. Then they stopped you being able to support or give the church. And then eventually, they just stopped them gathering altogether. And like these things happen, it drives it underground. And Bonhoeffer starts an underground seminary for people who wanted to take the gospel seriously and believe that Christians could stand firm against the pressures of their culture and follow Jesus. And it was in this context and that setting where he wrote his books, The Cost of Discipleship and Life Together. Those are kind of two most famous works. But the seminary was pretty hardcore, right? It was established to make radical disciples, and so it was pretty radical, okay? And he had these friends that were in the ministry, all kind of in underground settings and working in other parts of the world. And when he told them what he was doing, they were like, whoa, like, that's a bit much. It's a bit too intense. And so one of them eventually flies out to see him thinking, well, maybe when I land there and I see it, it won't be as bad as the way he writes about it. He arrives there, sees it, and he's more concerned than he was through the letters. He's like, this is off the charts. Mad. There's just no way. This is not going to work. There's like 50 to 60 students there. And he's just like, no way. And so Bonhoeffer says, come with, come with me. And they get in a rowing boat and they row across a lake. And they kind of land on the shore on the other side. They walk a hill to the top of the hill. He looks out and he shows him. And in the distance he can see planes, Nazi planes, landing, taking off. He can see soldiers being trained, really drilled, like really, really drilled. And Bonhoeffer turns to his friend at that stage and, and he says to him that he's, he's talking about a new generation of Germans here who were in training, whose disciplines were formed for a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. And he points to them as you see them, incredible might and strength and organization and all of that stuff. And then he points back to this like little house behind where there's like 50 or 60 ragtag people, oppressed, hidden, And he points to them and he says that the only way that this affects our culture, the only way that people can stand firm in what they believe to be true is if this, the seminary, is stronger than that. If our discipline, our discipleship, our path, the way of Jesus is stronger than that. This has got to be stronger than that. Jesus says, follow me. There's a path. And it's costly, 
But it's the only path because it has to be stronger than the culture that is trying so desperately and convincingly to disciple you off the path. You know, sometimes we read about the disciples and I think it's really easy to think they were just incredible men of faith, right? You kind of read about the things they do and you think, well, I mean, of course they could. They were on another level to me. I'm like down here, they were up here, right? But the truth is that they weren't. Certainly they weren't at the start. I mean, just reading passages like John 14, 1-9, shows Thomas and Philip with huge doubts about Jesus and the whole lot. And we know that later on, Peter would deny Jesus himself. They weren't giants. They're just normal men. They're just normal men who followed the path right up to what was a horrendous end for many of them. But because of them, we're here today. The delivery system worked. Because it turns out that the way of Jesus was stronger than all the might of Rome, stronger than all the might of the Nazi regime. This was stronger than that. Follow me. It's an invitation to a path, but finally it's a call from a person. It's an invitation to a path, but it's a call from a person. Jesus says, follow me. And when he did that, he was doing something that was actually incredibly countercultural from that time. You see, in that age, I don't know if you've ever seen Wild Country, that mad documentary on Netflix, right? But if you've seen that, what you will know is that for most rabbis, you chose to follow them, right? So in other words, you watched what you did, you maybe listened to them teach, you kind of saw what they were up to around the world, and then you usually entered a prolonged period of trying to figure out, well, is this the one that I want to follow? And normally, that was because you were like taking a year or a period of time like that out of your normal life, sort of like an internship. And so you kind of assessed, like, oh, is this one of these rabbis that travels a lot, or do they stay close to home, or where are they based, and am I going to be comfortable there? All of those sorts of really practical questions. In other words, you tried to assess, to try and get a sense of if they were a good fit for you. Which one suited you? Which one inconvenienced you the least? And Jesus does it entirely the other way. Yet here, multiple other times, we find Jesus, the light of the world, the Son of God, the name of every name, the only true rabbi, approach men and women like you and I and say, follow me. Follow me. We keep saying this through this series. God steps towards us. He makes the first move. It's him that says, follow me. And for the disciples that day, this was probably not the first time they'd seen him. The truth is, this was a small part of the world. We know that from John the Baptist's story, he had huge crowds that followed him. We know from his story too, that lots of those crowds left him to follow Jesus whenever he was on the earth. We know that when he arrived and he spoke those first words, that people were listening. So we've got to assume in some way that these people knew something about Jesus. They'd almost certainly traveled to see him. This probably wasn't the first time that he'd crossed their eyes and yet here he was stood right before them. He was right in front of them. They were looking into his face. They were hearing his voice right before them. And that's important because what it meant was all they could do was make a personal reaction. They had to give a personal response. It wasn't ethereal. It wasn't like, oh, yeah. He couldn't, like he was there. He was right there. As William Barclay says, Jesus didn't show up and start telling them the ethical system or the theological foundations for his ministry, nor did he show up and start a discussion. He just shows up and he says a couple of words, follow me. This wasn't about his words, it was about who he is. It wasn't just a path, it was a person. And these were just ordinary people like us, right? 
They were somewhere in the middle of the economic curve. They were somewhere probably in the middle of the gifting curve. That's where they were. They were ordinary, like you and like I. Sorry if I've just insulted you, but they were. They were just ordinary. It's just ordinary. But the problem with that in our world is that there's this pressure to be extraordinary, isn't there? There's like this thing, this narrative out there. You're extraordinary. You're this. You're that. You're, you know, you've got to be someone extra special, whatever it is you do. And if you can't be someone fabulous, wear something fabulous, right? That's kind of the narrative that's out there in our world. I don't know where that came from. I mean, was it Oscar Wilde? Oh, I was planning to sell that. Anyway. All right, fine. Anyway, there's this narrative that you're meant to be extraordinary when the truth is that you're not. And even the people who really are meant to be extraordinary, it turns out that they're not either. So Lance Armstrong is just a cheat. Tiger Woods is a fraud. Cristiano Ronaldo is just a tax evader. Donald Trump is a misogynist. And even James Dyson, the glorious inventor of the Dyson Hoover, it turns out he just wants to jump ship when things get hard too. We're ordinary, we're disappointing, and even if we look extraordinary, we're not. And that's the problem with our culture and our lives, isn't it? We're constantly reaching for the filtered version. We're constantly trying to present the filtered version, constantly trying to crop out the bad, blur the ordinary into the background, and yet Jesus approaches these ordinary men in the middle of their everyday working lives, and he says, follow me. And the question is not how good you are. You need to know that today. The question is not how good you are. The question is not how exceptional you are. The question is not whether you're living your hashtag best life, right? That's not the question today. Nor is it how failed you are or how far away you are. It's not about what you are at all. It's about what Jesus can make of you. The question today is what Jesus can make of you. Whatever you are. In the book of Amos, okay, it's, it talks about Amos's life. Now, Amos was the third of 12 minor prophets, right? That's not a good start. Hi, I'm Dave. I'm the third of 12 minor something, right? That's not a good, it's not a good starting point. But he was. He was the third of 12 minor prophets. And it was written by this man who lived in Tekoa, which is a town in Judah, which was in the south. And it tracks his story as God speaks into his life and gives him a message to prophesy. And how he eventually carries that message from the south to Jerusalem, which was in the north. Now we all know that carrying messages from one side of a border to another tends not to go so well. And the reality was at that time, Jerusalem had strayed pretty far from the path. And so Amos's message was pretty hard hitting. So hard, in fact, that by the time he's in full flow, that Amos who's a priest in Jerusalem, tries to shut the whole thing down, right? He just doesn't want to hear it. And so this is what it says in Amos 7, 12 to 15. Then Amaziah said to Amos, get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. In other words, get out of my sight, right? That's what he's saying. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. And then it goes on. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said, go prophesy to my people Israel. And the next line, now then, hear the word of the Lord. He's just an ordinary guy. 
he's actually trying to back out here. He's probably afraid because he's, he's under threat. They're telling him to get out, and he's trying to, like, back down the fact that, like, I've got no title. It, this is kind of the equivalent of being like, I don't really know, like, you know, I, I'm not one of these people. I'm not from a prophetic background. I was just a shepherd, right? I was in the field one day. I took care of sycamore fig trees. I don't even know what that means, but how do you take care of sycamore fig trees? Like, grow. Like, what do you, I don't know what you do with that. Anyway, like, he was taking care of trees, and then the Lord speaks. And then he carries this extraordinary message to people on the other side of the border. And he speaks the word of the Lord. He's just an ordinary guy. There's nothing extraordinary here. And yet the Lord uses him for the most extraordinary message. It's not about what you are. It's about what Jesus can make of you. Here's the thing. The reality of the world in which you live is not the same as the reality of the world in which they lived, right? To kind of pick this passage up and just try to say like, oh, you know, it's just like their world. It's not. You live in a completely different cultural context right now. And the truth about our world right now is that it's doing its very best to pull you off the path and take your eyes off the person. That's what its aim is. It's trying to drag you away. It's trying to distract you any way that it can. And the reality is that it's really very good at it, okay? So, for example, every single day you will see in excess of 4,000 advertisements, right? Every day. In excess of 4,000 times you will be advertised to. And it's not just how often you're advertised to. It's the way that you're advertised to, isn't it? It's not just that you're bombarded with messages all the time. It's the way that they do it. So we're sitting watching TV the other night, and this kind of advert comes on TV. And it starts with this little, like, tiny toddler girl. As the parents of a little tiny toddler girl, I'm like, I'm in, right? So I'm interested. Little toddler girl grows up, you know, the life story, falling over, grazing her knee, parent picking her up, comforting them. And, you know, all the way, like, the life story comes through. Teenager, first dates, independence, like, all of that stuff coming. Like, I'm watching it, and I'm glued. I look around at Joy, and she's like, ooh like watching this thing right and we're like watching it to the end and all I can say to you is it's so compelling I'm like whatever it is I'm buying it and then it gets to the very end and it's like a kitchen who advertises for a kitchen like that like a small girl's life story buy this kitchen and somehow it works right or else think about it for a second the next time you watch a perfume advert you're like they're mental They're completely mental. It's like this fabulous life, like beautiful people with incredible bodies and clothes and like they get in these astonishing cars and all this. And then at the end, it's like Dolce & Gabbana. Like, what is that? How does that make sense? Just say like, this will make you smell nice. And it's $59.99. Buy it. Like, fine. I don't need a big like dramatic thing because the reality of it is the message of those are a story that if you want this life, And you want this lifestyle, and you want to be extraordinary as these people are, as you see them today, then you need to buy this thing. That's the message that it's saying. And they just stoke the fires of restlessness that's in our soul, and they cause us to take our feet off the path and our eyes off the person, to focus on lifestyles and focus on ourselves and ourselves and ourselves and ourselves relentlessly. And it won't work. You just wind up exhausted, don't you? John Mark Comer says this, human desire is infinite, humans are not. Therefore, we can never, ever satisfy desire unless we aim it at its one infinite source. You're not infinite, but Jesus is. 
And the only way we satisfy the longings and the stuff that's going on in our lives, the attention on the one, is to aim that attention at the one, at Jesus. You know, the first disciples took one look at that face and they heard the voice, but what they responded to with all that they had was a path and a person. That's what they saw whenever Jesus confronted them that day. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. And then in those incredible words in Hebrews 12, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. That's the path, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's the person, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The revelation is of a God who comes to us and says again and again and again, follow me. That's the epiphany today that we're talking about. The God who comes face to face with you, wherever you are, you ordinary person in the middle of your ordinary life, and says, follow me. Here's the path. It's costly. And I'm calling you to go from living all out, just trying to keep up with the world and keep your head above water, to going all in with me. My path leads to the cross, but it's the path that leads not just you, but many others to life. And it's Jesus' path. He'll go ahead. He'll go beside And it's about who he is and our personal response to him. Follow me. Follow me. That's the call. And it always has been. And it still is today. Follow me. Just follow me. And the question is whether right now you're laying down the nets of your heart your security, your safety, your traditions, your self-interest, your identity, whether you're prepared to do that, to follow him. And equally, you know, it would be crazy if we did a series on Revelation about Jesus and we never actually came face to face with what he means to you. Real question, like religious stuff, background, traditions, experiences, church upbringing aside, who is he to you? Right now where you stand, who is he to you? Because you've got to face him if you're ever going to take up the call of discipleship and answer, I'm prepared to follow you, Jesus, wherever that leads.